Welcome to Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes, produced by WKXL in Concord, New Hampshire, and podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes for worldwide distribution. We are really pleased to welcome back to Off the Record, Lanai Erickson. She is the Senior Vice President for Social Policy and Politics at The Third Way, a leading DC think tank with great influence on Democrats all over our nation. Folks go to The Third Way to find not necessarily a moderate way, but a rational way to bring together the various wings of the Democratic Party, which is a real challenge. Ledi Erickson, welcome to Off the Record. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, what a pleasure. Well, Matt, I'm going to turn it over to you for the first question. Sure. Um, Lene, great to see you, hear you again. Um, So since we last talked, we've had a little election in America. And when we were last together, you were projecting ahead. Where was the battle going to play out? And I I saw that you put together a little post-election wrap-up. Where did the battle play out? What was the tipping point in the election? Yeah, I think when you ask yourself, you know, which voter groups were really pivotal to making the outcome this time different than last time around for Donald Trump, it really is all centered in this nation's suburbs. You know, we saw huge uh, changes and shifts from 2016 with suburban voters and Donald Trump was just hemorrhaging support there. You know, in the kind of least urbanized counties in this country, Donald Trump did well in 2016 and he did well in 2020. His margins were about the same. Uh, But in the most urbanized Uh, in the most urbanized counties, and in particular in the suburbs outside the cities, that's really where Biden gained. So in the blue wall states, he gained more in the suburbs right outside the big cities uh, than were needed to cover his margin in both uh, Pennsylvania and in Michigan and even in Wisconsin. Um, And so just by the numbers, suburban voters really delivered the election to Biden. So Lene, what what is it about the suburbs and the folks who live there that that did the swinging? I mean, was it was it women in the suburbs? Was it men in the suburbs? And what is it about that kind of just outside the ur- you know just outside the urban pocket, but not rural, that that shifted attitudes? You know, one of the trends that happened in 2016 actually got worse this time around, and I think um, explains a lot of the shift that we saw. So um, before 2016, uh, pollsters and um, analysts didn't really look at voters very much by education level. They, you know, when they were polling, uh, they would control by things like race, they would weight by age, they would weight by uh, partisanship and other things, but they would not weight by education level, whether someone had graduated college or not, because um, voters really didn't have a divergence of opinions based on that in the past. And in 2016, we saw that really change. And it's one of the reasons polling was so off last time around, uh, because all of a sudden, white voters with a college degree versus white voters without a college degree completely diverged in their electoral behavior. 
And we actually saw that trend get even more uh, of a trend this time around. It, it broadened this time around that gap. Uh, so there's been some early analysis that was looking at um, what factors were correlated with a county growing in support for Biden compared to 2016. And the percentage of voters with a college degree was the number one factor. So, so you really see in those suburbs, they're very college educated. Those were the folks that really moved away from Trump. So given those kinds of trends and the obvious success of Joe Biden at the top of the ballot, why didn't Democrats do a little bit better further down the ballot? There were designs on flipping state houses. None of those came to pass for Democrats. In fact, uh, uh, Democrats lost several chambers, including in New Hampshire. And of the 27 races that Charlie Cook, the noted elections analyst, uh, had labeled as toss-up races going into the election, the Democrats seem to have batted 0 for 27. So what, what accounts for that? You know, there's still a lot more to learn. We have to remember people are still actually counting votes in some of these races. So uh, we'll be talking about this for, uh, for many months to come and the voter file data that we'll get next year will give us more info. But I have a couple of hypotheses right now. Um, the first is Democrats have a real structural problem, particularly now that we are doubling down with winning in more urban areas and losing in less populated, less dense areas. Um, and that is a really a big problem because there's less ticket splitting than there used to be in the past. So it really matters um, in a Senate race or in a House race, whether the top of the ticket does well in your district or your state. And what we saw this time around was the Senate races were almost completely synced with the top of the ticket outcome. Susan Collins is the only senator who was able to win a race when uh, her candidate at the top of the ticket did not in her state. And it used to be that about half or two thirds of the Senate um, had a state represented a state where uh, the other party would win the presidency. Right now, we only have three in each party that that's true. So it's just really become much more difficult for a candidate to um, outperform the top of the ticket in their own state um, that people just aren't ticket splitting in that way. Actually, um, I, I, I don't mean to cut yeah. you off, but I, I just Please. want to make sure that I, I heard that right. I, I have not heard that number before. That is that is a pretty jaw-dropping number. So, so what you're saying is that in the U.S. Senate, it used to be that a half up to two-thirds of U.S. senators came from a state where the state voted for the other party at the top of the ticket for the presidency. So there was ballot, there was ticket splitting. And now that's down to three, three out of 100. That's the case. Is that right? It's three in each party. So it's six three out of party. 100, wow. I guess. Wow, that <laughs> is- very stark. Yeah. That is stark, well, yes. Sorry, well, go on. Not, yeah. Well, you know, I'm just gonna chime in. We certainly saw that in New Hampshire where Joe Biden won comfortably by uh, I think seven points. Um, Jean, Senator Jean Jaheim, Democrat, handily defeated her, um, her opponent. Uh, we we uh, kept both Democratic members of uh, the US House and everything else went, um, went Republican. Um, uh, everything else went. So clearly the, the, the you know, there, there's a different, is it, is, do you think that there's a different kind of ticket splitting that we're going to see from here on out? 
Is this is this something that is now embedded in the political firmament? You know, it's possible. I think, you know, on the down ballot, the down down ballot races, let's say the kind of state legislative races, you know, my hypothesis on those is that Democrats spent most of their time this election season talking about how awful Donald Trump was. And, and, you know, our attacks on other Republicans were really about the fact that they hadn't done anything to distance themselves from Donald Trump. They were, they were kind of guilty by association. And I think that that is a much harder case to make when you're talking about a random Republican state legislator. Like he doesn't have much at all to do with Donald Trump. <laughs> so mm-hmm. there's, if you're not actually making a case about what one party or the other is going to do for you. And really your attack is based on, um, you know, not necessarily putting a lot of, here's what Democrats are going to do for you at the state level. Um, But, you know, we hate Donald Trump and this guy hasn't stood up enough against him. That attack gets less and less potent the further away the Republican gets from Donald Trump. So it might be a more potent attack for a incumbent senator. But once you get to state legislative races, it really kind of falls apart in terms of feeling really, you know, uh, like it's really going to be effective. Well, that's clever. Yeah, no, go on, go on, go on. Well, I think it's related to the fact that, you know, the, the Democratic Party brand is not where we need it to be at this point. And when you ask people about Democrats in general, we just finished a poll we're going to release this week. What do Democrats stand for? They say raising your taxes and uh, caring for poor people. So that's like fine. I think there are a lot of things for which we do think taxes need to be raised to pay for things, but it's not just because we like to raise taxes. Um, so you know, there it, when you think about a generic Democrat, you don't have a lot to go on about why you might want to support that person. Now, Joe Biden has had a 47-year record of public service. People know who he is. They know what he stands for. It means he doesn't have to ride on that generic party brand. They know what he's for. They also know what he's against. Those attacks like Joe Biden's going to defund the police. Really? Really? Do you buy that? I don't buy it. You know, it falls away much more quickly. And if you are a a down ballot Democrat who doesn't have a quadrillion dollars to spend on your name ID, it's much harder to make your own brand and you have to rely on the party brand, which we know just isn't great at this point. That's right. That's exactly where I was going to go with this, which is, you know, you've done some post-election analysis about the fates of candidates who position themselves as a little bit more hewing to the center versus candidates who uh, ostentatiously position themselves as democratic socialists, uh, hewing to the left. And obviously you have a thesis around this. It just, and so I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about that, about that positioning, especially in light of what you just said, that you know, perhaps someone like Joe Biden, who's so well known, so well defined, can withstand any negative associations with the Democratic Party label and brand, but perhaps down ballot Democrats are not in that kind of position. Yeah, I think there's been an active conversation ever since uh, the election in 2016 about what Democrats needed to do to win again. 
And the, you know, there was one side of the debate that said, we need to go really far to the left. We need to show a big contrast between what Democrats stand for and Republicans. You know, this argument is led up by uh, Bernie Sanders, obviously, uh, folks like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others, um, groups like Our Revolution and Justice Democrats. And they said, we just need to keep pushing further to the left and that's gonna energize people and get them out to support Democrats. And then the other side of the coin was, you know, the center left who said, well, what we need to do is appeal to swing voters. And it's been an ongoing debate, but I think at this point, uh, the debate is pretty much settled because what we saw was now in two subsequent election cycles, moderate Democrats were able to flip seats from red to blue. The first time around flipped 33 seats in 2018, uh, and the Justice Democrats in our revolution did not flip a single seat red to blue, did not add one to Nancy Pelosi's majority uh, in that blue wave election. This time around, they failed to do it again, still zero. And the moderate Democrats, the new Dems, were able to add uh, at least a couple, even in a tough election cycle. So, you know, I think we, we've seen how, how that works. And you can also see it in, um, in individual districts. So uh, one of the candidates that ran on Medicare for all and a, and a left um, kind of agenda, Bernie style agenda, and was endorsed by these groups, Kara Eastman, uh, had run in a Nebraska second district in 2018 and lost. She ran again this time, same agenda and lost. And Joe Biden won her district by seven points, yet she lost by four points in her own district. That's an 11 point difference between uh, you know, Joe Biden's performance and, and what she had on offer. And I think that really tells you something because for others like you know, Joe Cunningham or, um, you know, in South Carolina, folks that had really difficult Trump districts, they didn't underperform like that. They just had really hard districts to win. And especially in a year when Trump was on the ballot and, and spurred so much turnout. So, uh, but folks like Kara Eastman who ran on a far left agenda did much, much worse than Joe Biden, kind of the mainstream de Democrat in that district. And I think that tells us something about where we need to go. This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson, produced by WKXL. We're talking with Lanai Erickson, the Senior Vice President for Social Policy and Politics from the Third Way. We'll be back after a short break with more Off the Record. We're back. It's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes, produced by WKXL in Concord, New Hampshire, podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. And we are talking with a really smart person, Lanai Erickson, the Senior Vice President for Social Policy and Politics at The Third Way, a DC think tank. And we're, we're taking apart, we're dissecting the results of the 2020 election to try to figure out what happened? Joe Biden won, but down ballot, Democrats, frankly, got plastered, including in New Hampshire, where uh, some of what Lanai was just talking about certainly happened. In our first segment, we talked about messaging and what people think of Democrats as a fundamental notion. They think that Democrats are all about raising taxes. And here in New Hampshire, Lanai, what the Republicans did was they, they took an issue, paid family and medical leave. They said, that's really an income tax in disguise and up and down the ticket. 
every single Republican who ran from county to state to executive council to governor just pasted Democrats to the proverbial wall saying, all you're trying to do is put in an income tax. So not only did Republicans have message discipline nationally, and not only did Democrats have to overcome this notion that all we're about is raising taxes and giving away people's money to undeserving poor people, uh, but not only do we not have cohesive messaging, but you've got to wonder in this race, what do we make of the tactics argument for Democrats, a message, circumstance, um, and what what is the Democrats' message? And if we had so much more money, uh, why didn't our TV advantage help? You know, I think uh, one thing that we saw in our research, and we did different methodologies of research um, every single month, month for the last six months to really understand where voters were, particularly voters in the suburbs. And what we saw through all of that research, every single round was that uh, tr Trump and Republicans were still mo more trusted on the economy than Democrats. People trusted them on the economy, but they did not trust Trump on getting COVID under control. And they started to believe, especially as the pandemic uh, was really drawn out and has, has damaged our economy for such a long time that you couldn't actually get the economy back until you got the pandemic under control. And that's really where they trusted Joe Biden. If you look at um, folks who said it's more important to get the pandemic under control, uh, they voted for Joe Biden by 60 points. If you look at people who said it was more important to get the economy uh, going than get COVID under control, they voted for Trump by 60 points. But there were more people in that first category so 52% of the electorate said it's more important to get the pandemic under control. 42% said it's more important to just focus on the economy directly. And that's why Joe Biden won. Um, but it doesn't fix the problem that Democrats are still not as trusted as Republicans on the economy. And it's something we're gonna have to continue to tackle and really um, you know, put our money where our mouth is and show folks what does it look like to fix the economy as a democratic administration, uh, as a democratic house, uh, because that is the question on voters' minds and it will be going into the midterms. So I really wanna nail down, it sounds like you said something really important there which that, that, that I'd like to, like to nail down, which is, in this question that's that's come up, some have suggested, well, it really is, as Paul was saying before, kind of a tactical thing. The, the reason you're seeing some of these down ballot Democrats not doing as well, some, some of the down ballot Republicans being a little stronger is it's basically tactics. You're not spending enough on social media. You're not doing enough door knocking and, and grassroots. And it, it sounds like the pushback to that is, is sort of twofold, which is, Actually, it's not the tactics, it's the message. And beyond that, what I'm hearing and what you're saying is that's not necessarily a problem that we can just fit and fix within the election cycle. It's not like we can come back to this, you know, with three months to go in the next campaign and suddenly remake the entire brand of the Democratic Party. We need to address that fundamental brand in an ongoing way in everything we do, because it's just too high of a mountain to climb when we're just trying to climb it, you know, in that final run up to election day. Is, is that about right? 
I think that's right. If we are in the same position on the economy with Republicans consistently um, doing better in terms of trust on the economy by five to 10 points uh, a couple of months before the midterms, we're going to get walloped. And we have to deal with that uh, before and really show that that in our governing agenda that we do know how to get the economy back on track. And that includes getting COVID under control, but also uh, investments in infrastructure, also, uh, you know, um, big stimulus packages that are get going to get people back to work, also supports for um, targeted to folks that have been the most hurt by this um, economic crisis. And, you know, that's what voters are going to be looking for is can Democrats actually get things done that are going to make it better for them. And, you know, on the tactical point, uh, I think it's it's interesting that, you know, some some folks in certain districts that are more urban want to give advice to folks in uh, in districts that look very, very different. But, you know, one of my favorite members of Congress is Sochi Torres Small in New Mexico, and she lost this time around. Uh, Trump had won her district by 10 points in 2016. He won it again. It's a huge, expansive rural district. It is the biggest district that is not an entire state in this country. And if you think that Sochi Torres Small's problem was not doing enough digital, you're wrong. <laughs> she, you know, that's, that's just not what's going on here. Um, she did everything right, but she was in a very difficult district and they had a lot of folks turn out for Trump that they didn't expect. And I think that's one of the big um, crazy things that happened this cycle was, you know, we had 157 million people vote, 67% turnout. And the theory has, you know, often been every new voter is a democratic voter. You know, if we can get somebody at the polls, that's, that's people that are sitting at home agreeing with us, uh, but just haven't been motivated enough. And this really showed that that's not true. You know, Trump got 10 million more votes this time around than he did in 2016. You know, there are people that are low propensity voters on both sides of the aisle and all of those folks came out to vote this time. Uh, and it turns out that, you know, this theory that every voter that's sitting at home not motivated is a potential progressive ally is just not playing out, certainly not in Sochi Torres Smalls district. Huh. You know, I, I'm, I'm, this, is, this is so, um, resonant for me, this discussion. And Matt, I bet it's a little bit resonant for you. And Lenai, I'll just, I'll, I'm just going to interrupt the here and now to say that a few years back, Matt and I uh, began an effort to, uh, we said, we need to have Democrats develop a concise uh, economic agenda that works for a majority of Americans. But it's not just an agenda. We need to develop an emo We need to translate that agenda into an emotionally resonant message that will help Democrats up and down the ticket. And Democrats need to be able to adopt that emotionally resonant message uh, in a cohesive way. Uh, suffice to say that we're now co-hosting on WKXL and podcasting, and we are not working on uh, that economic agenda and developing and spreading that cohesive message. Because frankly, when we pitched the idea to Democrats, they basically said, eh, meh, we're more concerned with individual races and, and, and this notion that you have about a cohesive message for Democrats, meh, uh, you know, 
how important really uh, is that we're we're focused on winning races and you you know so so goodbye and and thank you for the thought but we don't really need it so here we are um, a few years later with Democrats having. Uh, their message as we're not Trump and Trump is terrible and Democrats winning some races when there is an evil enemy to go after, but struggling, as we've said, with the overall brand. So in the sense that we've got to do a lot of work on branding, uh, let's we'll put that aside for a moment because we are at this moment a party where a moderate president now will lead the party, but we are still quite a fractured party uh, between the left and center. I certainly see that in New Hampshire where progressives feel disenfranchised, having um, they feel been disrespected or ignored by uh, the establishment party. And we certainly see it nationally. So how do we work constructively in our party between left and center? How do we incorporate progressive values in a in when when only moderates are winning, uh, we can't want, we can't just say to the activist progressive wing of the party, oh, would you people just shut up about your climate change and shut up about helping black people and shut up about all that? Uh, you can't do that. Is there is there a way to bring some discipline uh, that is a constructive discipline to the Democratic Party that brings? the various wings together? I think the answer is absolutely, and there has to be. Um, you know, one thing that's going in our favor right now is that we uh, all agree uh, on the priorities. I think the, the number one priority, the number two priority, the number three priority right now is getting our country out of this pandemic and getting our economy back on track. Uh, so, you know, every Democrat in every part of the party thinks that that's what we need to do right now. Um, and if we didn't have these crises facing us, we might be having a more fractured conversation about what should be first, second and third. But we don't have to now. We, kn we know what, what the job is on day one right now. So that's helpful. And I think that a lot of the priorities that we've that we all agree on and the values we all agree on can be embedded in our response to the pandemic. How do we make sure that the response to the pandemic is, um, you know, is taking account of the fact that uh, the impact of the pandemic has been worse in communities of color? How do we deal with that? How do we make sure that our uh, economic stimulus response is embedding uh, our uh, response to climate change? You know, there are a lot of ways that we can, um, you know, progressively address the issues that we face that I think we agree on. Um, and, and that's good. And I think the fact that Mitch McConnell uh, is probably likely going to continue to control the Senate um, is also helpful for the, the party fracturing because he's going to be the one saying no to things. It's not going to be uh, a question within the party of how far do we go and let's take this, you know, trifecta out for a spin. 
likely we have to get through, um, you know, things that are, are gonna be able to pass through a Republican held Senate. Um, and I think that that means that our sights need to be set on um, actionable ideas, not necessarily on, you know, what we would do if we could wave a magic wand. Um, but yeah. I, I'll just uh, just say one more thing on this, which is sure. you know, we always compare the two parties and, and how they react and you, uh, had mentioned Paul, the Republicans being so disciplined, having a message, all being on the same page and the Democrats not. Part of that is that there is an asymmetry baked in, which is that 80% of people who vote for Republicans are self-described conservatives. They're not a diverse party in any way. <laughs> they're not ideologically diverse. They're not racially diverse. They're not even gender diverse at this point. Uh, and our party is, is a much bigger tent in so many ways. About half of people who vote for Democrats say they're progressive and about half say that they're moderate or conservative. So we just have a harder job when it comes to having a unified message and keeping our party together. Um, but it's also what makes us better at you know bridging those divides because we do have a lot of different views in the party and and we're going to be stronger for it what a fascinating fascinating analysis so we only have about a minute left before uh, we take a break um, it's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson. We're talking with Lene Erickson of The Third Way about uh, the recent election and prospects for Democrats. I think, Robeson, we're going to take a break now and we'll come back after this message from the folks who keep us on the air. Don't go away. We're back. It's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes, produced by WKXL in Concord, New Hampshire. Your podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We are talking with Lene Erickson of The Third Way about recent election results. And we're doing a deep dive into the Democratic Party versus the Republican. Republican Party, what's our brand? What's our message? How do we make it work in the long term? How do we bring the various factions together? And one of the questions that uh, comes to mind that I'm, I just would like to follow up if I can uh, from your last comments, Lena, is thinking back to the 90s when we had new Democrats who helped propel uh, Bill Clinton into a presidency, um, are there institutional elements in the Democratic Party that can serve the necessary function of doing what you were just talking about in terms of helping uh, Democrats uh, message more effectively, build the brand more effectively? Can it be done uh, with existing folks inside. And, and I say that as somebody who served in the House and, and watched what really seasoned politicians in the House did uh, when they talked about message, which frankly, to my mind, was totally ineffective without any regard for the science of messaging, the craft of messaging. Um, politicians do not seem to be the right people to, to deal with it. So who is it in the democratic firmament that can help uh, help the, the various wings and our broad coalition 
uh, reach cohesive messaging and, and have a plan, develop a plan for rebranding the Democratic Party, which I think is, as you say, is, is really necessary going forward. I think it's really different when you have control of the White House versus not. You know, when we're talking about uh, who was the leader of the Democratic Party over the last four years, I mean, you could argue maybe it was Nancy Pelosi. It, if you're asking who's, you know, the voice that's loudest on Twitter for Democrats, maybe it's AOC, you know, or, or Bernie Sanders. There's just, there were a lot of voices and no one necessarily in charge. Um, and now Joe Biden is the leader of the party. What Joe Biden says is what the Democrats say and what they stand for. And so I think that sets us up well in that he clearly had a better finger on the pulse of uh, both what primary voters wanted and what general election voters wanted than most of the rest of you know the political atmosphere. He outperformed people's expectations in both of those contests. He won by not a little, but a lot against Bernie. And uh, and he was able to you know defeat Donald Trump. So uh, I'm I'm encouraged that he is now going to be the one that is speaking for the party, and I think that helps. The other natural place to do this would be at the DNC, and we do have an opportunity at this point. There will likely be a new DNC chair, uh, and some folks have been really starting to point to Jamie Harrison as a, a potential new DNC chair. Uh, he was the wonderful candidate who ran against Lindsey Graham, unfortunately did not win in South Carolina, but uh, raised a ridiculous amount of money, got a ridiculous amount of folks involved and excited. Uh, and he was a former state party chair. So he really understands you know, uh, what the challenges are that the Democratic Party faces on the ground in trying to um, you know, translate what's happening to uh, down ballot races. Um, and, and he also represents kind of the new South of, you know, a younger generation of Democrats that are trying to win in some of these red and purple places. So I think that there's opportunity in places like that. But as you point out, the House caucus is also going to be a, a big um, driver of particularly the conversation between the center left and the far left, because that's really where we see folks who have turned blue districts even bluer, um, that are you know energized and wanna talk about what they wanna talk about to represent their constituents. And then folks who have just now won very difficult reelections in districts that Trump won uh, and feel very much that uh, you know the far left has damaged their ability to um, reach out to the kind of suburban uh, center-right folks in their district. So I think we will continue to see a lot of uh, cross-party discussion in the in the Democratic caucus to um, try to figure out where can those two wings of the party find some common ground and um, and make some progress now that we do have a Democratic administration. I want to pick up on two things you said real quick. One is I love your 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 statement of Democrats. A lot of voices, no one necessarily in charge. I think that should be our our logo, our, our motto. I think it captures the essence of the party perfectly. And second of all, I really do want to put in a plug for Jamie Harrison, who before he was a state party chair, was a congressional staffer uh, and worked with me. Uh, closely to help support Paul when he was in Congress. He's a brilliant guy and uh, I, I just love the dude. So, um, you know, uh, three cheers for that idea. So just going back to your point before about 
one of the Democrats' biggest problems is that, and I think people sort of misunderstand, they see the two parties as mirror images of one another. They, uh, they, they see that in the Republican party, the formula for success in a Republican primary is be more conservative because 80% of Republicans are conservative. And they assume, well, then the converse must be true in the Democratic party. Uh, and that's certainly the argument that you do see from a lot of people on the left. Notwithstanding the fact that, you know, you, you threw out some statistics that, you know, it's, it's things like half of Latinos don't like the idea of decriminalizing border crossing. Black voters surveyed list reparations last on a list of economic priorities. And so you see that there's a real wide ideological variation within the party. So going back to your last point about what can Democrats in Congress get done under a Biden administration, what do you think the common points are within that broad spectrum of democratic priorities? I mean, big D democratic. What, what do you think the, the sweet spots are, the, the common points are that they're going to line up with behind Joe Biden as the president and the leader of the party? And are any of them realistic prospects for legislation with a, let's just say a more likely than not Republican led Senate? You know, I think there's a lot of agreement across the Democratic Party on social issues at this point. And this is a place that um, we've seen a real evolution from the early 90s. You know, in, in the early 90s, the moderates within the Democratic Party may have been uh, more cautious on social issues. You might, you would have seen more pro-life Democrats uh, in, in elected office. You would have seen folks who were very leery of LGBT issues and others. Um, and that's really changed. A lot of the moderates now represent, as we've said, the suburbs, and they're not at all concerned about being out there in, in favor of gun safety provisions, common sense gun safety reforms. Uh, they're not afraid of standing up for LGBT people, of um, standing up for racial justice. Um, and I think it, whether or not the, you know, kind of um, bumper sticker phrases of, you know, abolish ICE or defund the police are helpful. I don't think they are. There are policies underneath there that Democrats agree on. Let's reform our immigration system. Let's um, reform policing and make it work again, um, or make it work for the first time for many people across this country. Uh, let's, uh, you know, make sure that we um, do not give criminals and terrorists access to guns. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of those things are gonna be difficult to make progress on in a Republican controlled Senate. So I think a lot of those issues are gonna to have to be dealt with by executive action to the extent that they are. But Democrats are unified on what we'd want to do on those issues, um, you know, had we controlled the Senate or if we controlled the Senate, if we flip those Georgia seats. Um, I do think there are other things on which we'll actually be able to make progress um, just because there are things that need to get passed this year. So, um, you know, in 2021, we're gonna have um, we're going to need to fund the government. We're going to have, um, you know, some of the tax uh, breaks that Republicans passed expiring. We're going to have, a, you know, defense authorization bill. You're going to have just must pass legislation. Um, and so people that are saying, well, if Mitch McConnell controls everything, we're not going to get anything. I think that's oversimplified. I think there are um, levers on which we can push. There'll be another COVID stimulus um, where we can embed some of our priorities. Um, but, you know, Donald Trump has uh, for four years said it's infrastructure week. 
and done nothing on infrastructure. <laughs> and I think that's a place where we could we could actually get some bipartisan agreement. Let's invest in this country's infrastructure um, as part of a COVID relief package. Um, you know, let's uh, let's make progress to um, give more economic opportunity um, and have you know make it easier for small businesses um, to access capital, to um, hire, to uh, you know, provide opportunity to those in their community. I think on some of those issues, we have a fair amount of agreement um, across party lines and there aren't as many litmus tests um, that we would run into. It's more um, a matter of funding. And at this point, you know, funding is gonna have to happen because of COVID. Uh, so there are some opportunities, I think, to make pro real progress. So in that light, given that it is possible that there may be uh, some places Democrats can eke out some legislative progress, uh, assuming as it sounds like we all are, that uh, it is more likely than not that Mitch McConnell stays in charge of the Senate. We're in a new election cycle. Hey folks, the last election is so yesterday. It's December, and we're less than two years away from a midterm election. Now, as uh, somebody who suffered through a midterm uh, with the Democratic president and uh, got, got wiped out, um, midterms are, are, are often pretty tough for uh, the, president, uh, the, the president's party. What do Democrats have to do in the next, so let's say, six months uh, to be successful in the midterms? How do we set the table right now for success uh, two years away? Well, first of all, we have to keep our eye on the ball and make sure what we are delivering on is what voters asked for, which is get the pandemic under control and get our economy moving again. And that has to be everything that we're talking about. And we can embed other priorities within those things, but that's what voters want. And in most elections, and certainly in midterms elections, uh, voters are asking, am I better off than I was two or four years ago? And if voters can answer in 2022, am I better off? Uh, it, with the answer, yes. Democrats are going to be in an okay position. And let me tell you, things are pretty bad right now. So to be better off, uh, you know, potentially isn't that hard. We have an opportunity to, to uh, deliver on that, on that question. Um, one thing that I think has been overlooked in a lot of the discussion about difficult midterms is that Joe Biden is going to be the first Democratic president to come into office without total control over Congress since Grover Cleveland. So in those other midterms, Democrats had unified control. We were able to um, come in and do whatever we wanted. Uh, in, you know, for Barack Obama or Bill Clinton, they had both chambers of Congress and that will not be true likely for Joe Biden, which means that responsibility is gonna be shared and the, um, and the dynamics are just gonna be different. So if, you know, if responsibility is shared between the two parties, um, we may not see the same kind of dynamic of the kind of wipeout that we saw in, uh, you know, in Clinton's first midterm or Obama's first midterm. It may be more like Clinton's second midterm, where 
um, you know, there was there was uh, voters realized that both parties had responsibility for what was going on at that point. So if we can deliver, make people's lives better, and show to the extent that you know we're limited in that that Mitch McConnell is part of the problem, I think we're going to be in a better position than maybe we think. Well, Lanai, that that is a hopeful sign. Uh, because you can't do a lot worse than Donald Trump has done with COVID. And uh, Democrats seem well poised with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to follow science, to talk straight, to level with the American people. Uh, a vaccine looks like it's on the way. And hopefully by 2022, things will be looking up. And we really appreciate all the work that Third Way does. And we appreciate having you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I think Democrats uh, need work on their brand, need work on their messaging, need work on cohesiveness. And uh, hopefully uh, the DNC under new leadership will uh, actually deal with those kinds of things which Frankly, I don't think Democrats have ever really dealt with. Like you were saying about the situation with COVID, uh, it does seem like we could do a little bit better in the future. <laughs> this is Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes, produced by WKXL, podcast on Google Stitcher and iTunes. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll be back next week with another Off the Record.